there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Thank you. My latest book is not loveliness, but loneliness. A lady came up to me at the book table and she picked that book up and she said, Loneliness, what's that book about? Well, I said, it's, it's about loneliness. <laughs> also, I wasn't sure what date you said I married Lars Grin. Did she say 77? Okay, that's correct. I thought I heard her say 50-something, and of course Jim died in 1956, and I thought, I better correct that if that's what she said. Thank you for coming this morning. I know you had many options. I want to mention three books that have something to do with what I'm going to be talking about this morning. I've never written a book on child training and probably never will because people would certainly say, well, who, do you, who are you? You've only got one child and uh, I'm not likely to have any more. <laughs> but I did come from a family of six and I have the opportunity now to observe many young mothers with small children and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this. Um, in this book, Love Has a Price Tag, this is a collection of essays on many different subjects, but there is one essay in here called Five Kids and Peace. And it's about a visit to a home. I spent a weekend in a home where there were five kids, and there was perfect order and perfect peace, and I'm going to be telling you a story this morning about one of those children. Then... One thing that's very important, if you intend to discipline your children, it is impossible if you don't d discipline yourself. So this book, some of you might need. It's on personal discipline. It's called Discipline, the Glad Surrender. And it's about bringing under the Lordship of Jesus Christ your body, your mind, your emotions, your time, your work, and your possessions. Discipline, the glad surrender. And then we did mention this little booklet, booklet yesterday, but I just want to refresh your memory that this booklet, Sex is a Lot More Than Fun, is for children between the ages of 10 and 16, somewhere along in there, to help them learn to prize the gift of virginity. My husband will be at the book table at the hours that are stated and at good many hours that are not stated, and so will I. As I said, I have many opportunities to observe the ways in which young mothers manage and fail to manage their children. All of us have opportunities, don't we? All you have to do is go to the supermarket and you see the poor harried mother with the infant in the, on the infant board in the cart and maybe the two-year-old also riding in the cart and the four-year-old clinging to her skirts or racing up and down the aisles and putting pennies into the gumball machine and pulling stuff off the shelves. And when the poor mother finally gets to the checkout counter, then, of course, the demons who arrange grocery stores put all that candy and all those little things along the side there. So while she's trying her best to get the stuff onto the moving belt and get the change, the money out of her purse, the children, of course, are filling up the cart with stuff that she doesn't know anything about. And she's 
in a distracted way saying, put that back. I said, put that back. Now, would you leave that alone? Now, shut up. And the poor child knows that she doesn't mean what she says because she really doesn't expect him to obey. And so she's training him not to obey. Well, not very long ago, I had a young mother with an 11-month-old child visit me. And I don't believe in childproofing a home. My mother did not believe in childproofing a home, and she raised six of us. For the obvious reason that when you go somewhere else, if the child has not been taught what no, don't touch means, then he's going to be grabbing stuff at Aunt Susie's house and at Grandma's house and at the grocery store. One time I was in a Hallmark card store and there was a baby in a stroller systematically pulling the cards off the bottom shelf and just strewing them around the floor. And you know what the mother said to her? She said, Susan, do you see that lady back there? When she sees you pulling those cards off, she's going to get mad at you. Now, to me, that is a horrible, immoral way of trying to train a child. Because all she is interested in is making sure that the child is not made uncomfortable. It has nothing to do with teaching the principle of that does not belong to you. Do not touch it. So if you child-proof your home, you are not doing your child a service. Well, let me go back to my friend, I'll call her Mary, with her daughter Jennifer, who came to my house. Well, Jennifer, as Mary and I were trying to carry on a sensible conversation, and it happened to be about matters of business, Jennifer is making directly for the glass coffee table that has a little ceramic box on the top of it. And, of course, grabs the lid of the ceramic box and picks it up, and Mary says, Jennifer, put that down, dear. Jennifer, uh, put that down, please. Jennifer, that's Mrs. Gren's box, and that's a glass coffee table, Jennifer. And if you drop the lid of that on that coffee table, you might break Mrs. Gren's table, and that wouldn't be nice. Thank you, Jennifer. That's a good girl. No, Jennifer, no, no. Put that back, sweetheart. Jennifer, dear. Thank you, Jennifer. And Jennifer, for two seconds, you know, looks over at something else and back to the coffee table. Jennifer, Mommy said, put that back. Put that back, please. Jennifer, that's Mrs. Gren's box. You might drop that. That's Mrs. Gren's glass coffee table. Jennifer, thank you, Jennifer. And this went on for 20 minutes while we're trying to carry on a conversation. You know, I wanted to grab Mary by the shoulders and say, there is another way. <laughs> I sat in an airport while right next to a young mother who also had an 11 or 12 month old child who was climbing onto the carousel, which was not moving at the moment, for 20 minutes, exactly the same thing. Get off of there. You might get hurt. That's a machine. That's going to start up. You might get hurt. Child pays no attention. The mother gets up, grabs her, brings her back, plunks her down. Two seconds later, she's back, back and forth, back and forth, physically removing the child, yelling at her. And what is she doing? She is training the child. Every mother trains her child, either for good or for evil. Now, my mother always made the point, you train a child long before you teach them anything. 
And the difference is that training means molding, instructing by exercise and drill, making obedient to orders, or pointing in an exact direction. I'll read it again. Training precedes teaching. This is point one on your outline, if you would like an outline. And it does help to get things sorted out. Training precedes teaching. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, it says, Start a boy on the right road, and even in old age, he will not leave it. The King James Version says, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, the word there is train, not teach. Train the child, which means, and let me go over this again, to mold, to instruct by exercise and drill, to make obedient to orders. Now, you can teach somebody, and all I can do this morning is to try to teach you something. I cannot train you. So you can, you're perfectly free to reject anything I say. It is not my job to train you. It is my job to present to you what I believe to be the truth of God. And you as responsible adults are free to accept it and put it into practice or reject it and say, oh, well, I don't really agree with that, and that's just Elizabeth Elliot's opinions, and, you know, it doesn't work, it doesn't work with my child, etc., etc. You can do anything you want with that. But a mother and father are responsible before God to train their children, to point them in an exact direction. You know how you, you train your binoculars on a bird. If you're like I am, I live on the ocean, and I can't resist grabbing my binoculars and looking at every bird that goes by out there. Uh, or you train a gun. You point it in an exact, precise direction. And that is your job as a child, as a, the mother of, a, of children. So these mothers that I have just described are training their children not to obey on the first command. The child is programmed to disobey until the mother either gets mad and screams or grabs him and does something physically or, some, or has spoken ten times. The child has been programmed not to obey on the first try. And if the mother gets up and goes and removes the child physically from the belt, then she's training the child not to listen to her word, but to pay attention only to what the child can't do anything about. And, and you're not training the child in moving away from the belt by going and picking her up. The child then does not have to do anything except wait to be done to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. And when you raise your voice, the child is trained to pay no attention unless you raise your voice. And if you raise your voice habitually, whenever you're telling the child, no, don't touch or don't do that, then you're gradually training him not to pay attention at all. And I went into a house one day where the mother was speaking to me in a perfectly normal tone of voice, and every time she spoke to the children, 
She spoke in a different voice, and it was a very harsh voice. And come here, come here, Johnny. Come here. I want you to meet Mrs. Gren. Now say, shake hands with her. Shake hands. Okay, Johnny. Now, Bill, stop that. Now stop that. And the whole time it was like that. And then she turns to me and she says, "Did you ever see anything like these kids? They don't pay. They don't pay attention to a word I say." And I felt like saying, for a very good reason, because you have trained them not to pay attention to a word you say. And the constant screaming is like the old story of the boy who cried wolf. If you're taking care of sheep and, as a joke, you cry wolf enough times, then nobody's going to come running. And so this is the way many unwise parents are training their children. So what do you do? Well, the Bible is very clear that every parent needs a rod. It does not mean a two-by-four, but it does mean some implement that will inflict physical pain. Now, some of you may absolutely hate and deplore that idea, but it wasn't my idea, and it has nothing to do with child abuse that we hear so much about these days. It is the Word of God, and it is language that a small child can understand. We're still on point one here, the training, because the rod is a method of training that the scripture makes very plain. It says in Proverbs 22:15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It's not the rod of hatred. It's the rod of correction which comes from the parent's love for that child. And in Hebrews 12, passage that I read last night, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You must endure his discipline because he's treating you as sons. It says he lays the rod, the Lord lays the rod on every son whom he acknowledges. There are many verses, Proverbs 23, 13, says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. Take the stick to him and save him from death. As I said in my talk last night, God disciplines us by grace in order to save us from ourselves. And a selfish life is death, isn't it? And it is your job as a mother to give saints to God, to train these precious little children, these malleable, soft, correctable little human beings, so that they may be saints for God. If you love them, then you will do it God's way. Verse 14, if you take the stick to him yourself, you will preserve him from the jaws of death. That's Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Proverbs 29, 15. Rod and reprimand impart wisdom, but a boy who runs wild brings shame on his mother. Verse 17, correct your son and he will be a comfort to you and bring you delights of every kind. What is the parent's purpose in punishing a child? 
well, the same as God's as described in our theme passage for this conference, a peaceful harvest, our true welfare. And when your little child says, well, the only reason you spank me is because you hate me, of course he cannot possibly understand at that moment. But as you humbly and faithfully correct him as God has has commanded us to do, and then assured that child of your love. He is trained in that direction, and he begins to learn. Second thing, the obedi our obedience to God requires faithfulness in mothering. Obedience to God requires faithfulness in mothering, and fathering too, of course, if I were speaking to men. I would add that. And as the scripture says, the way God trains us is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And unfortunately, that comes down to what is usually called nagging. We don't want to be naggers. But there ain't no other way, ladies. It has to be constantly line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, over and over and over again. But I don't mean by that doing what my friend Mary was doing with Jennifer, saying 29 times, don't touch, without using the rod. Now, my daughter Valerie keeps a, what we call a switch, just a little branch off of a bush, or a paint stirrer. Those paint sticks are perfect for it, or a light ruler. Anyway, she keeps one in almost every room in the house, I think, and she carries one in her purse when she goes out, because one of the places where any smart child is going to realize he can get away with things if you don't have the stick with you is anywhere other than home, in church, in the grocery store, at grandma's. And my mother kept a little switch over the door of every room in the house. Just a little thin switch. And when she broke that on one of us, we were subjected to the indignity of having to go out in the backyard and pick another one, bring it in. So that little switch was always there. Now, if you get the idea from what I'm saying here that this means that these poor little children are going to be beaten black and blue every day of the world, you couldn't be further wrong. Because the truth is that when you start soon enough, and 10 months is not too soon. To use that switch, that stick, you hardly ever have to use it. And I see that working in my grandchildren, and I, I certainly remember it working in our house. My mother all only had to raise her eyes to the top of the door after she had spoken once. I mean, she never spoke more than once. Come here. The child doesn't come, raise your eyes to the top of the door, and the child comes. If the child doesn't come, then of course you get the switch, and you use it. You don't decide not to use it because the child immediately says, oh, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, mommy, don't do this. And the other day, the other day, a couple months ago, I was in California with my grandchildren, and as soon as Valerie said to Colleen, come, and Colleen did not come, she's three years old, Valerie said, I'm sorry, Colleen, but I'm going to have to get the switch. And Colleen was right away, don't pay me, Mom. 
mama, don't paint me. And she's holding her behind like this, but it was too late because she knows that the first time mama speaks is when she has to obey and delayed obedience has to be treated like disobedience. You will not have to spank them many times to get that across. Now, if your children are older than 10 months, it's going to be much more painful if you have not started at that age. But it's never too late. If, it's, if your child is old enough to be reasoned with, and I would say that's four or five, don't even think of trying to reason with a two or three year old, you can simply say, Mama has been to a conference and Mama has learned something. Did you know that Mamas can learn things? Yes, Mamas can learn things. And I want to tell you, Johnny, that we have been doing it wrong. And so from now on, I want you to understand I'm going to speak to you in a normal tone of voice, just the way I speak to Daddy. And I expect you... <laughs> Maybe we need to do a little correcting there first. That's what I said. You cannot discipline your children if you don't discipline yourself. Just the way I speak to a stranger at the door, shall we put it that way. When I am my most polite, I'm I expect you to obey. Now, do you understand? And you show him the stick and say, this is going to be used on your legs. Now, I'm very careful to say, don't ever use a stick on a child's face or anywhere near his head. My mother sometimes used it on our hands and we had to hold our hands out and they got spanked maybe once or twice, just hard enough to really hurt and make the child cry, but not, it doesn't do any permanent damage. Or if we had bare legs, then that little switch really stings, you know. So it has to be enough to hurt them because that language they can understand. So your obedience to God requires that you do this. And faithfulness in mothering, under this same heading, I would put the habit of prayer. You must establish a habit of prayer. You cannot do this by yourself. I mean by that, first of all, your own individual private prayer. I would hope that those of you who have Christian husbands have already established family prayers, family worship. And that's one of the great influences in my own life. We had family worship twice every day. And I would say, certainly aim at a, a regular time, even if it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, or whatever. That's regular. At least there is something that is absolutely sacrosanct. You don't rearrange that schedule except for dire emergencies. But in any kind of a disciplined home, it certainly ought to be possible to find at least six minutes to have family worship. And it doesn't have to be any high-powered sharing time or anything like that. I'm always careful to say my father was a very reticent man and very, very straightforward and in some ways cut and dried and we certainly never had any family sharing time. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm only saying that it can be done even if your husband says, oh, well, I, you know, that's, I'm not into that kind of stuff. And you're more spiritual than I am, so you lead the family devotion. Don't lead the family devotions if there's any way around it. Now, if your husband is telling you that you must, 
then you have to submit to your husband, but I would hope that eventually the message is going to get through to him, that he is assigned by God to be the priest in that home. And he is the one spiritually responsible. So I could spend a couple of hours on family devotions, and I don't have time to do that this morning, but we'll leave it at that. Establish a habit of prayer, personal private prayer, family prayer, and then, by all means, when there is a real problem that arises, perhaps a fight between your children, and somebody really gets hurt, and then is, well, he did this, and yeah, but she did so-and-so, and you can't sort out whose fault it was or whatever, I would say the first thing you do, stop, everybody. I don't want to hear your stories. Let's talk to God about it. He knows who did what. I didn't see it. God did. So let's talk to God about this. And at least you pray, and maybe if the children are of an age to make this sensible, then you ask them to pray, and then take them separately into another room and hear each person's story without the other one saying, yeah, but he, well, she... I don't want to hear anything about your story. You wait here. I'm going to talk to Susie first, okay? Number three, I want to tell you a story about one of the children in this home where I described five kids in peace. Little Brad was two years old. His mother's name is Arlita Winston, and those of you who listen to my radio program are going to hear from Arlita in February or March, I think it is. We did the taping just a week ago, and she did... 12 programs with me, and I'm just thrilled and can't wait till those are aired because Arlita is a very, very wise mother. Her children are all grown now, and it is a model family. I've never seen better behaved, more courteous children, and I've never seen happier children, and that to me is very significant. I think the two things go together. The most insecure children in the world are those who do not know where the lines are drawn. The children whose mothers and fathers change their minds all the time and yell at them and repeat their commands and make promises that they don't carry through and make threats that they don't carry through. You know, if you do that, you're going to get a spanking. And Johnny goes ahead and does it. He doesn't get the spanking. It's the parents who are then destroying the moral fabric of that child. Well, Arlita is a wise mother. And she tells this story on the radio. And if you hear it then, it'll be much better than the way I can tell it this morning. But Brad was two years old, and he tore one of his little books to shreds. Now that's a very common thing. In fact, the first and only spanking that Valerie ever had from her father, Jim Elliott, was when she was, uh, well, she couldn't have been more than 10 months old because he died when she was 10 months old. She might have been nine months old, but she was crawling and she went across the room and she pulled a book out of the bookcase, one of his books, and tore one page. And Jim immediately said, Valerie, those are my books. Those are not your books. Now, you can talk this way to a nine-month-old. A nine you don't have to say, you don't have to talk in baby talk. and say that, That's daddy's book. You know, then the child immediately gets the idea that unless he hears something in baby talk, he doesn't have to pay any attention. You know, so Jim said, that is my book, Valerie, and you are never to touch daddy's books. And he spanked her good and hard. That's the only spanking she ever had from her father. Well, from then on, for several days, as we would be sitting there in the living room, she would start to crawl toward that bookcase, looking over her shoulder with that demonically mischievous look, as if, well, you meant it on Monday, but I'm not sure you mean it on Tuesday. I'll just see whether you do. And Jim said, Valerie, no. And she paused, testing, testing, 
looking at both of us, you know, maybe mommy will let me do this and daddy won't. And looked as if she was going to start again and we sat there nailing her with our eyes and that's important that the child knows she has your attention, perfect eye contact and then she just turned around crawled away as if she didn't have the slightest intention of ever touching that book again. Well after Jim died she never once pulled a book out of the bookcase. Never once. I don't think she was an unusual child. I think it's just that we started earlier, early enough and we let them know we were serious. Okay, Brad tore up his books, one of his books. Arlita moved swiftly, point one under three. Number three is Brad's story. Point one, swiftly. Picked up Brad quietly, gently, and set him on a high stool in the middle of the kitchen. Isolated from everything. He couldn't touch anything, he couldn't get down. Just plunk. Swiftly, quietly, gently isolated. Eye to eye, his mother looked at him. Put that down, eye to eye. And she said, Brad, call him by name. The next word is slowly. You have ruined your little book. Believe me that she is one of the gentlest, sweetest, people in the world, very, very intelligent and very strong, but very ladylike. She's a beautiful woman and very determined in whatever she does. So swiftly, quietly, gently, isolated, eye to eye, call him by name. And she spoke slowly and she said, Brad, you have ruined your book. That is so sad. And his big eyes got bigger and she said he realized the seriousness of this because of the way I had left my work at the sink. I had given him my full attention. I spoke in a serious, quiet, very low voice. In fact, the more serious she is, she says, the quieter her voice is. And then she picked up all the shreds of the book and put them in Brad's lap. She said, Brad, these are the pieces of your nice little book. Look what you've done. That is so sad. And Brad had to sit there and look at the evidence, the damning criminal evidence of what he had done. And she said he had to sit there for close to an hour. Now, I'm not going to defend that particularly. I said, Arlita, an hour. Don't you think that's maybe a bit much for a two-year-old? She said he learned the lesson. And he didn't scream and cry. He sat there contemplating the evidence of what he had done. 
And then she said she'd picked him off the stool and she went over to the rocking chair and she sat down with that little boy and she rocked him and she hugged him and she loved him and she said, Brad, I love you. You're my sweet little boy. I want to make you a good and holy man, something like this. I'm making this up, but just whatever a mother wants to say to her child. And it, it, I believe in speaking to children about things which you think at that point are far beyond their understanding. My experience is that children are almost always way ahead of us in understanding. And I see some of you nodding your heads. You know, when I hear a mother say, oh, well, he's too young to understand that, I say, how do you know? You, know, you don't know what goes on between the Holy Spirit and that little child. And so speak to the child in huge words if you want to. Tell him, look, I'm trying to make a saint for God out of you. Don't you want to be a saint? There's a wonderful hymn in the Episcopal hymn book, which probably hardly anybody here has, but it's, it starts out, I sing a song of the saints of God, faithful and brave and true, who fought and loved and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. And one was a doctor, and one was a queen, and one was a shepherdess on the green. They were all of them saints of God, and I mean God helping to be one too. It's a children's song called, I Sing a Song of the Saints of God. So if you can get your hands on that, it would be a wonderful one to teach your children. And it goes on about, you can meet them in trains and in shops and at tea. You can meet them in school, and I've forgotten all the words, but they are all of them saints of God, and I mean God helping to be one too. So I'm trying to make you a saint. So you sit there, and this is very important. After you have punished your child enough to make him cry and enough to make him sober down and be serious, then comfort him, assure him of his love, and tell him what he will not believe then, but what he will learn to believe, that you did it because you love him. And when you're going to spank him, you could say, I love you, Brad, and the reason I have to spank you is because I love you, and I want you to grow up to be a pure, good, holy boy and man. And it is the job of the mother then to deliver that child from himself and his selfishness and his destructiveness. Number four, the recognition of authority. It is essential that you establish your authority. I am in charge of this home. As long as you live in this home, you are going to do it my way. And the child must be given to understand that whenever his will crosses the will of his mother, you are not breaking his will. You are not destroying his individuality. You are simply guiding it and correcting it. It's like steering a car. Steering a car is only correction. That's all it is. If you leave the car to itself, it will invariably go into the ditch or into the other lane. So all you're doing is steering the car. You're not destroying it. You're not keeping it from running. You're putting it in the direction that it's supposed to go, as we said under the definition of training, pointing it in an exact direction. So if this child is going to be pointed in the direction of God and of self-discipline and of holiness, then he has to be pointed away from the direction of his own self-destruction. So you must establish your authority in the home and remember that your authority has been assigned to you by God. 
And so you are, first of all, recognizing the authority of God over you. It is your obedience to God that will make you a faithful mother. It is your obedience to God that makes you a submissive wife. It is your obedience to God that ultimately will make you a saint. We're talking about the quest for holiness. We want to be saints. And look at the raw material God has to work with. How far we are from that. I mean, it's just almost absurdly laughable when we think of the great gulf that's fixed between what we aim at and what we know we are. You know, a lady came to me just before this meeting and she just stood there and she said, I stand in awe of you. I said, don't. And when people say, you know, you're my model or you're my spiritual mother or something, I say, just pray that God will make me what you think I am. Because I know and God knows and Lars knows that I am very far from being a model or an idol or somebody to be stood in awe of. But it is my submission to the authority of Jesus Christ in my life that is going to be my hope and my salvation and my liberation. And as he corrects me by every form of suffering that I've ever known and by every tiny little needling thing like losing my cross pen, if I respond in faith and in love to him, then gradually the rod of discipline is leading me to freedom and to holiness. So it's all a piece, you know. What God does for me, I in turn am trying to do for my child. And you, don't ever forget this, ladies, you represent God to that child. You and your husband represent God to that child. My opening lines in my radio program are, you are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Now that child doesn't know anything about the everlasting arms. And you can talk to him about God, and you certainly should from day one. But his idea of God and the comfort and the love of God are going to be shaped by you. Your arms are God's arms to that child. Your correction is God's correction. And so as the child learns to accept your authority, it's going to be a great deal easier for him to accept the authority of God in his life. And I know that's true because I came from a strict home and we knew that we children were never in charge. We were never polled for our opinions. We were never asked to vote on whether or not we wanted family prayers or not. We would have certainly voted our parents down. We didn't pay any more attention than your kids would. But an awful lot gets through by osmosis, you know. Just watch your kids watching TV. You don't think they're paying any attention to the commercials, but they, rem they memorize every one of them, don't they? It just gets in there. So you're helping your child later to be obedient to God by being obedient to you. And number five, you must follow through. And that takes self-discipline and it takes sacrifice.
anybody knows that it's much easier for you to pick up the toys than it is for you to get the child to pick up the toys and put them in the right place in the right way. If the child is permitted to pick them up in a grumpy, careless, resentful, rebellious way and just throw them someplace where they don't really belong and you're satisfied with that, you're training the child to do things that way. It's your fault. Valerie has testified, and I recently read an excellent book. Let me recommend this, put this right down. Now I got my title for this seminar from The Obedient Child. It's, that's the title, and the author is Ken Wilson. It's full of very, very practical instructions. But what he says in there, I was interested, uh, corroborates exactly what Valerie says, that the most difficult thing for her to teach her children is to be cheerful about things they don't want to do. Now, I have to testify, if a grandmother's testimony is worth anything at all, that they are obedient. And when I've, on rare occasions, had the opportunity to take care of them by myself without the parents around, it was just amazing to me how very obedient they were. But, Valerie said, I, that I can get them to do things. They, will, they do their work, and they, she homeschools four of them, and so they do their schoolwork and everything else, but she said they don't always do it cheerfully. And so she just decided, okay, we're going to have a whining chair, and anybody that whines is going to sit on that chair for ten minutes. And Christiana, that little character that I was telling you about yesterday, the one that was had to be spanked three times in one day, Christiana was probably five or six when she said this, when Valerie sit and spoke about the whining chair, Christiana said, 10 minutes? She said, well, I think that if they whine while they're on the chair, then they have to sit there for 20 minutes and get a spanking. <laughs> that was Christiana's suggestion, and she's one of the worst whiners. Um, and she has a terrible habit of just bursting into loud tears just instantly. I've never seen anything like the way she, who is probably the most cheerful and outgoing of the six children, can turn on those tears and use them as a weapon. And my husband and I had a week with the three oldest children this past summer in North Carolina where I was speaking at a camp and the people there were very kindly invited me to bring all my grandchildren if I wanted to. So I got, we got the three of them from California and Christiana did this to me a couple of times when I told her that she had to do something or not do something that she wanted to do or didn't want to do, she turned on those tears, like that. I mean, she is loud. <laughs> and I just grabbed her by the arms. I said, Christiana, stop it. We are not going to listen to that kind of crying. And tears are pouring down her face. And she's going. And I said, if you are going to cry like that, there's another room where you can cry. We don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. Now you go on in there, you go into the bathroom, and when you have a happy face, you come back. If you find a happy face in the bathroom, then you can come back. Well, it, it, it works like a charm. I mean, the fact that she can turn them off is perfectly obvious, too. So she, we don't have to take that. But you must follow through. And this raises the question of what you make an issue out of. And you must be very careful and self-disciplined and sensible and thoughtful in what 
issues are really important. And remember that deliberate disobedience is the key. You spank them for deliberate disobedience. And Valerie, at the age of 10 months, was deliberately disobedient about going and touching that book. And so was little Jennifer. She was perfectly aware of what her mother was saying. At what age do you think a child understands the word no? Six weeks? Two months? Seven months? Seven months. Okay, well, certainly by that time, and probably sooner, I said to Arlita, what do you do with a baby? She was talking about having to train a, a baby to not cry in her crib. And she had a, a very clear schedule as to when they were to get up, and she said, when my baby would wake up before that and start to cry, she said, of course I would change the diaper and feed her if it was time to be fed, but if it was not time to be fed and not time to get up, she said, I just explained to the baby, this infant, it's not time to get up, now you're gonna stay in your crib. Now I don't mean, I don't think she means a six weeks old infant or anything like that, but long before the average parents would feel that they could tell a child, it's not time to get up, Arlita was doing that. And she said those, the child, after maybe two or three mornings of having to do this and some having to listen to the child cry in the crib, they get the idea that there is a time to get up and there's a time to stay in the crib. And she said, I always put books and toys in the crib when they went to bed at night. In fact, I know one mother who told me that she put books and peanut butter sandwiches <laughs> in her 10-month-old baby's crib. Well, you can imagine the state of the sheets by the time those peanut butter sandwiches had been consumed, but it gave the parents another extra hour of sleep in the morning. The baby would sit there and look at the books and eat the peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> so anyway, you must, make an, you must be careful and work these things out with your husband, if you have that kind of a husband that you can, on what is important. And if the child spills his milk, for example, now that is not deliberate disobedience. Have you ever spilled milk? Okay, that is not deliberate disobedience. And you don't spank him for that. Any childish mistake, breaking something that was not forbidden that he touch, be very careful about that. You must correct him and to try to teach him to be more careful and show him the damage and go through all the steps that Arlita did with Brad and showing him that we don't do this if we can possibly help it, but the child is going to see you spill something too sometime and it's going to be very confusing to his sense of justice. If he gets spanked for something that you did too, it was a mistake. And if, for example, the child wants to climb on the counter when you're chopping something with a sharp knife and you don't want the child on the counter, Valerie often has a child sitting on the counter watching whatever she's doing, but if it's not time for the child to climb on the counter and the child climbs on the counter, then of course that is an issue that you must make very clear. He is not to climb on the counter when you tell him that he's not to. It's, a, it's basically the matter of obedience to what you say. And if you go ahead and let him climb on the counter in spite of having told him that he's not to, and then he breaks something, then you're going to get mad and hit him and spank him for having broken the thing. It's your fault he broke it. It's not his fault. See, so if he was not spanked for climbing on the counter in the first place when you had told him not to, 
it's very unjust to spank him because finally he did get into some real trouble that made you angry. Do you understand the difference? So follow through on anything that you decide is a real issue. Going to bed at night, getting up in the morning, and as I tell in my story in this book, Love Has a Price Tag, I said to Joe and Arlita, how did you do it? Referring to this beautifully organized household. And they looked at me in, in puzzlement, and they looked at each other as if, well, how did we do what? And I said, I want to know how you created this kind of a home, this kind of a household. And they were quite hesitant to come up with any neat answers, but Joe finally said, you know, he said, before we had the children, before the first one was born, he said, Arlita and I sat down and discussed what kind of a home do we want to have? What kind of children do we want to have? And he said, we just did it that way. And he said, I made up my mind that if I had to fight and struggle and wheedle and plead and nag with my kids all evening to get them to bed. I think that's one of the most horrifying things to see parents who can't get their children to bed. And fight and argue and wheedle and plead and nag every morning to get them out of bed. I'd hate my children. He said, I don't want to hate my children. So he said, this is the way we did it. See, now that was an issue. And this story tells how, how they solved that one. I'd never seen anything like it. It was a peaceful, quiet evening. The kids never came once to interrupt our adult conversation. I could hear people practicing and homework was being done and the dishes were being washed. And all of a sudden there was just a dead silence. And I said to Arlita, where are the children? And she said, what time is it? I said, it's quarter of 10. She said, well, then they're in bed. And I said, you mean they don't even come to say goodnight? And she said, Usually not when we have company. She said otherwise we would say goodnight and sometimes go up with them. These children were, the youngest was eight at that point. I'm not talking about tiny tots there. But All right, I'm going to run through these five <laughs> points again. And then I'll give you a chance for a few questions. We've got, I think, ten minutes maybe. Number one, training precedes teaching. Number two, obedience to God requires faithfulness in mothering. Number three, Brad's story. Number four, the recognition of authority. And number five, follow through. And that takes self-discipline and sacrifice. A mother has to sacrifice herself in order to get that child to be obedient. It's going to take a lot more time at the beginning to train the child to do the thing well. Now Valerie's son, who's now 12, learned to bake bread when he was seven years old. She was homeschooling, so the children had time to do a whole lot of things they can't do if they go to school. But it took a lot of time and trouble to teach a seven-year-old to bake bread. But by the time he was eight years old, she could say, we're out of bread, Walter. It's time to bake some bread. And the next thing you knew, there were four gorgeous loaves of homemade whole wheat bread on the counter. And he still bakes bread sometimes, although his sisters have learned now to do that. And the children, the 10-year-old and the 12-year-old, always do their own laundry. All the, almost all the cleaning in the house is done by the children, and the oldest is 12. So 
you know, it can be done, and I'm not holding Valerie up as a perfect example, and if she were here, she'd be saying, oh, mama, don't say these things, you know, it's not working, this is not working, I'm not the kind of mother I want to be, the house is not by any means always ordered the way it's supposed to be, these children are not perfect. But I'm just telling you what I see when I go there. Who has a question? Okay, Lars is just scared to death there's going to be a stampede for this book at the book table. He doesn't really have very many. He said he didn't want me to mention it, and I said, well, it's in here, and if I mention it, maybe three people will want the book. But anyway, uh, he does have some, and I'm sure that you would... I did explain that. There's only one chapter in this book called Five Kids in Peace. The rest of the essays are... And what did he do then? I didn't see that. Anybody have a question? This lady back here. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think I have any special advice other than just to constantly assure her of your love and continue to discipline her. Now, Valerie's three-year-old daughter has just been discovered to be epileptic. And uh, she had to be put on phenobarbital, which makes, makes her hyperactive. I thought it was the other way around, that it would make her depressed. But it's seems to have this effect. It controls the seizures, but it makes her hyperactive. And so Valerie asked my special prayers about that, and of course I began to pray, and she said she gets into all kinds of things. She's always been a mischievous child, and any three-year-old gets into all kinds of things. But, she said, it just seems as though she's thought up more naughty things to do than she ever did before. Valerie found her banging the kitten's head on the piano keys, making the kitten play the piano with its head. You know, and Valerie said, she knows that's naughty. So she said, I had to spank her. And Valerie continued, even though one's mother love and protectiveness wants to be very uh, special about treating a child that has that kind of a, a disability. Valerie said, I knew that I was still responsible to discipline that child. And so she kept on and she, had, she said, I've had to give her two spankings a day sometimes, which is really very unusual. But... After about a month, when I, each time I call her, I ask for the new list of prayer requests. So I said, how's Colleen doing? And she said, Mama, she has turned into the sweetest, most obedient little child you've ever seen. So in spite of, of what can be a real psychological problem or physical problem, whatever it is, I still believe that the principles of love and discipline and obedience are the very salvation of that child. I'm afraid that's the best I can do on that one. Yes, this lady in the second row. I don't think we can do anything at all without the permission of the parents. And if you're going to babysit the children, then I, I don't have any problem with this because my daughter and my son-in-law both constantly ask me for advice and say, you know, tell us anything, tell us what we're doing wrong. And when you're around the children, then you're to discipline them. But there are a lot of people that don't feel this way about the mother or the mother-in-law. So if you are to babysit for them, then I would certainly make it clear to your daughter or son, whoever it is, that you will do it on the condition that you are allowed to discipline them as you think they need to be disciplined. But if you're in the home with them, then certainly it's the parent's job. My, my grandchildren, uh, I think, know me well enough to know that I agree with what with their parents' discipline and that I will back up their parents and that I'm also likely to mention something. I will tattletale if they need discipline on something. 
And usually I don't have to because they know perfectly well that they have to behave with me as they do with their parents. But we do have to keep our mouths shut. Yes, Lady in the Stripes. Mm -hmm. Will our children become obedient to God if we do this with our children? I believe that there are many scriptural passages which would certainly indicate that we have a far better chance of hoping that that will be the case. Uh, there are many instances or a number of instances in scriptures where pa parents have been unfaithful in their discipline of their children. Eli is one of those examples and his sons and they paid a terrible price. But we do have to realize that that child is created with a freedom to choose before God, just as you and I were. And this verse that says, train up a child in the way he will go, and when, he's, when he should go, when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's important to notice the difference there between training and teaching. Because if all the parents are doing is screaming and yelling at the kid and saying, don't do that, they can say, well, I certainly told him that that was wrong. But if you didn't love that child and pay attention to him and take time with him and constantly surround him with your love, then he will depart from your teaching. And obviously, everything that I'm saying has got to be gradually revised as the child grows. But the same principles hold. The discipline is still there. The love is still there. And the recognition of authority is still there. But it's going to take different forms. I'm certainly not recommending that you use the rod on your 14-year-old child, for example, the lady in the pink. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can say how, how old is too old to start spanking. I'm repeating the question because I presume you're still taping, are you? Um, if you get a stepchild that's 11 years old who has been undisciplined, then I would certainly start out right away by explaining to the child, um, maybe things were not done this way in your other home, but here's the way we're going to do things, and we're going to help you learn this. And in every possible way, give the child the chance to learn, because it's going to be much harder. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.